the only way to eat this elephant, so to speak, is is one bite at a time. And I think we have sort of done ourselves a disservice uh, by trying to turn this incredibly complicated challenge into like one issue, which is are we or are we not agreeing to to get rid of fossil fuels? You're listening to the USSC Briefing Room, a podcast from the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, where we give you a seat at the table for a USSC briefing on the latest developments in US news and foreign policy. We'll cover what you need to know and what's beneath the surface of the news. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Briefing Room from the US Study Center at the University of Sydney. My name is Jared Monshine. And I'm the director of research at the US Study Center. But before we get started today, I want to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation, on whose lands we gather at the University of Sydney, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Today, I am very lucky to be and fortunate to be joined by Lachlan Carey, who is a resident fellow at the US Study Center and also a manager at RMI, where he leads work on US regional economic development through clean energy investment. He is also one of the top experts in the U.S. on the Inflation Reduction Act and happens to be Australian. So he seeks not only Australian, but also American when it comes to climate in particular. We, we recently have come out of the COP gathering in the Middle East, and soon there will be another one next year in Azerbaijan. But to discuss that all with us, I have... Lachlan to give us the lay of the land. But Lachlan, on on COP, we, we hear about COP in the headlines. We saw it was COP 28, we saw it maybe Dubai, and then there's a lot of confusing headlines about whether progress was made, whether it's significant, whether this is enough for climate change. Um, could you just give us an idea of what COP is? Is it significant? And um, what does it even consist of? Sure thing, and uh, thanks again for having me, Jared. It's it's great to be to be on the podcast. So, COP twenty eight, uh, as the the name suggests, is the twenty eighth time COP has been held. COP uh, stands for the Conference of the Parties, which is all the the nations who are signatories to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. This was signed all the way back in nineteen ninety five. Although, sort of in a sense, the first COP really happened in nineteen ninety two at the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, which was kind of the first time global leaders came together and said, hey, this climate change thing might be a problem, we should probably do something about it. Um, and so ever since, we've had these annual summits that have kind of grown in scope and scale. Uh, COP28 had over 100,000 participants, somewhat remarkably, uh, in, in Dubai. And put my cards on the table, I was not one of those participants. Um, I've never been to a COP, and uh, I'm not entirely sure based on many of the reports I've heard coming out of this one that I want to go to one. But I am a kind of keen observer of, of these these summits and particularly an observer of how they impact national policy and national investment decisions, which is really what I think all this uh, comes down to. So in answer to your question of like how relevant is COP, how important is COP, I think we need to sort of hold two ideas in our head at the same time. One is that COP is this sort of pseudo event. It exists uh in a kind of meta narrative to be discussed, right? COP is the one time of the year that every newspaper from the New York Times to the Sydney Morning Herald will put climate change action on the front page. And that's a really, really important thing because those conversations need to be had. We need much greater awareness of all the changes we need to make in our energy system, transport system, 
food system, uh, you name it, in order to reach our net zero goals. And we don't have those conversations often enough. And COP is the one time that they do happen. So in that sense, the negotiations themselves, like the outcomes of those negotiations, aren't half as important as the fact that we're talking about the negotiations, if, uh, if that makes sense. So there's that as- aspect of COP. Um, and so in, in many respects, I see those, those formal negotiations being uh, somewhat of a red herring, somewhat of a, of a distraction from where the real action is, which is the other 99,900-odd people at, these, uh, at COP, what they're going to are all the side events. You know, it's essentially the world's largest trade conference for climate tech, climate policy, climate investors, um, and people addressing the very real challenge of climate adaptation, particularly in the global south. And so it's at those events that we see, you know, all sorts of amazing coordination activities around things like the Global Methane Pledge, which is uh, incredibly important. Uh, a pledge to triple global nuclear capacity, which obviously in Australia is its own kettle of fish, but is, was a really important outcome from this particular COP. And so when you could separate those two things, I think you start to see how COP can have a real effect on the narrative on the one hand, but also on these really technical policy financial questions on the other. So I guess one question I have given that there have been so many cops in the past, do you think that they have made important progress? Like in terms of like uh, the significance of it, do you think that um, it's still as relevant as it was when it's, when things started in Rio or do you think maybe it's um, it's it, it, it's not getting the sort of tangible wins that it may might have used to in prior years? Yeah, so I think what we needed from COP has changed, and so we sort of need to evaluate COP on that sliding scale. So for its first uh, five years or so, COP really existed to build the scientific consensus around climate change. Right, you know, back to the the bad old days of the nineties when we were still arguing. Is climate change even a thing? What is this greenhouse effect that we keep talking about? Um, and so the the origins of COP is really this, this pretty unparalleled exercise in international scientific um, coordination and consensus building. And that was an incredibly successful effort. Uh, you know, the quality of the, uh, the sort of Scientific products uh, that come out of um, of the COP meetings and the UNFCCC process really are, are remarkable documents that have fundamentally altered the way in which we all think and talk and act on climate. So there's that first phase, which I think resounding success really comes out of you know this post Cold War period of sort of peak multilateralism in the 90s, right? This idea that we could all come together and, and really solve these uh, these global uh, global you know, problems. You then get the period from 1997, where you get the uh, attempt at the Kyoto Protocol. This was the sort of overreach period of trying to build consensus around the policy element, right? Where they said, okay, this thing called the Montreal, Montreal Protocol, which fixed the ozone layer problem, that worked. So let's just copy that and implement that on climate. And what the Montreal Protocol did was create a legally binding commitment upon countries to substitute away from these particular chemicals that were released, HFCs, into the atmosphere that that were leading to deterioration of the ozone layer. There's a certain logic to it, but in hindsight, that logic doesn't stand up so well. It says, 
all right, let's do that to all the different pollutants that contribute to climate change and try and enforce these legally binding commitments on every country on the planet. Uh, as we as we know, the US failed to ratify that agreement in the Senate. Australia failed to ratify that agreement for many years until Kevin Rudd became prime minister. And basically the, this idea of a top-down government telling every country the way in which they uh, were going to deal with climate change and at what speed, incredibly ambitious, but ultimately a, a sort of failed uh, attempt. So you then get all the way to uh, the Copenhagen summit in 2009, this big sort of failure to meet expectations of Obama and Kevin Rudd and other new leaders that had come you know, onto the international stage promising to do something about climate and, and really kind of uh, you know falling on their faces out of the gate at this this Copenhagen summit. Um, and that kind of marks the end of that particular period. You then get this regrouping of what to what to do uh, at these these summits. And that's where you get to the Paris Agreement. 2015, COP21, this comes up with this new mechanism of sort of naming and shaming or the, the ratcheting mechanism of the global stock tank, which basically says, let's agree on the target. Two degrees, preferably 1.5 degrees Celsius, uh, and then it's up to each country to come up with their own plan of how they're going to meet those goals. And then the idea is COP, this pseudo event that I mentioned, kind of builds up enough discourse around uh, these uh, these plans that countries are shamed into actually living up to to their goals and what are called these nationally determined contributions. And that's sort of the phase we're at now is figuring out okay, well, we've got this stock take process. That seems to be a success. But then what does this shaming actually involve? And how do you go from you know, people on the outside kind of yelling at countries for not doing enough to those countries actually turning that into real policy decisions and companies turning those into real investment decisions? That was a fantastic overview of, of the journey with COP. Um, so I guess that leads us to today then. Um, so we're in that post-Paris period where everyone's coming up, as you said, with their own sort of pathways on this. Do you think what we recently saw after uh, two weeks of, um, of pseudo and real events in, uh, in Dubai that anything significant happened? I do. So, um, you know, one way to look at it is uh, the International Energy Agency, which is you know, sort of one of the, the world's premier um institutions uh, on on these issues, they had a list of five criteria that they thought would, would sort of need to, to happen for it to be a successful COP. Uh, they said, we need commitments to triple global renewable power capacity. Countries did that. Uh, so that's, that's a success. Um, countries also agreed to double the rate of energy efficiency improvements. Uh, so we, we got that. Commitments by the fossil fuel industry, oil and gas companies to align activities with Paris Agreement and cut methane emissions. There was some of that, um, you know, uh, a lot of greenwashing, a lot of concerns about how real those those commitments uh, commitments are. But we did see a lot of action on on methane, which in the short term is the sort of much more powerful contributor to climate change. And so to have some of those major commitments, and mind you, commitments matched by policy action at the the domestic level, uh, we just saw a bunch of, of new announcements come out of the Biden administration on that. Um, so I think that that was a really big success. Um, the IEA also said we need to establish large-scale financing mechanisms to triple investment in emerging and developing economies. This is where we're really seeing countries kind of not living up 
to to their pledges. Uh, you know, whether it's meeting the hundred billion dollar uh, commitments uh, each year for the for the uh, Green Climate Fund, whether it's the lack of pledges for this new loss and damage fund. Um, you know, actually putting their money where their mouth is, particularly when it comes to helping the global south um, address the the clean energy transition. I think that's where we're still kind of failing to uh, to meet where we, we need to be. And then there's this final piece that the IEA recommended where we saw most of the headlines and kind of I think the murkiest sense of whether this was a success or not, which was whether to commit to measures that ensure an orderly decline in the use of fossil fuels. So this is this idea of a fossil fuel phase-out. Of course, this big controversy that COP was held in uh, the UAE, it was run um, there's a, the president of COP is the, the president of the UAE's state-owned oil company, um, and there were literally tens of thousands of fossil fuel lobbyists at COP. And so this question around what is the role of fossil fuels in the energy transition, how important is it for countries to commit to a phase-out and uh, this, the use of this word, an unabated uh, phase-out to, to fossil fuels uh, in terms of the role of carbon capture and other uh negative emissions technologies uh, also comes to the to the fore. Um, and, you know, your mileage on that certainly varies. Some people see commitments around a fossil fuel phase out to be the number one thing that countries can do at COP. I personally would push back on that because, as I say, I kind of bring all climate diplomacy and these international um, uh, you know, agreements and so on around climate back to, to one simple question. Will it affect policy or will it affect investment decisions? And for major fossil fuel producers and exporters, I fail to see a mechanism by which a sufficiently strongly worded fossil fuel phase-out will translate into major policy uh, new policy decisions or will change the behavior of, of major oil companies. And so until we kind of figure out the, the next layer of depth uh, in terms of what is the mechanism by which you would enforce a phase-out. Um, I, I don't personally put a, a huge amount of um, kind of importance on that that particular element. So in terms of that being the most, uh, one of the, the headlines about progress in COP, what do you think were the reactions to COP? Because to be honest, it's... It seems a bit mixed for the lay person reading about what happened at COP. It, it, it honestly seems so politicized that it's hard to sort of get a objective takeaway on whether there was there was progress on any of those areas that that you mentioned. Is there any one reaction that you think is is the one that is the broad takeaway, especially leading up to next year? You talked about the role Dubai hosting it, but also next year is Azerbaijan, which I believe it does even less work on non-fossil fuel areas of investment than than any of the Gulf states. So yeah, do you think that there's there was actual progress or sort of the reactions to this last COP and such, and, and then moving into the next COP are merited, or what's your sort of broad takeaway from the work in all those different areas? On the one hand, yes, it's a success that they admitted that fossil fuels are the problem and that ultimately uh, it's the burning of fossil fuels that is the overwhelming contributor to climate change. And at some point, we're going to need to get rid of them in order to, to reach, reach net zero. 
So that's that's the first time that's happened. It's the first time the phrase fossil fuels has ever been used uh, in in a, a COP agreement, which is um, you know that's a remarkable thing on one hand, but it's it's equally remarkable that it's taken us twenty eight COPs to get there, and so it sort of speaks to the low bar that we're we're working from here, and you know that's that's partially due to the the kind of structural um, you know makeup of COP, which relies on global consensus. Literally every country needs to agree to the final text in order for it to be uh, be released. Um, and so what what that means is you get really a kind of lowest common denominator effect, right? Where there's always going to be a couple of countries that say actually that's too strong for us, uh, and you end up with a with a watered down down version of the text. So I think as I, as I said before, the this focus on those formal agreements, those formal negotiations. Uh, does sort of miss the forest for the trees um, in in a lot of respects because if you look at those side effect uh, side events, if you look at the the numerous announcements made, you know whether it was Colombia joining onto the fossil fuel non proliferation treaty, which is kind of remarkable for a fossil fuel exporter, whether it was the U.S. joining the Powering Pass Coal Alliance, whether it was Australia can continuing to contribute to the the global methane pledge. Uh, you know, it's sort of on and on these these little chunks of the problem, which is which is ultimately how we're going to address climate change, right? There is no single decarbonization challenge. There is an energy decarbonization challenge, a transport decarbonization challenge, et cetera, et cetera. And so the only way to eat this elephant, so to speak, is is one bite at a time. And I think we have sort of done ourselves a disservice uh, by trying to turn this incredibly complicated challenge into like one issue, which is, are we or are we not agreeing to to get rid of fossil fuels? Because at the end of the day, getting rid of fossil fuels uh, is just the other side of the coin of deploying more renewable energy, of electrifying our economies, of replacing dirty molecules with clean molecules. Um, and so I think that's where the focus needs to be. And if you do focus on those issues on those events, those pledges, then I think there's there's a lot you can take away from this COP and and see just a remarkable progress that's being made in all these different areas, from nuclear carbon capture, food systems to um, you know uh, solar build out, etc., uh, etc. Et and from that standpoint, you know we're just wit- witnessing an extraordinary rise in the scale of clean energy investment in the the number of um, you know, new climate change policies uh, in the amount of government spun- spending going towards climate change mitigation. There's a lot of uh, hope out there, but if you focus just on that fossil fuel question, I think I think you can miss that. And in terms of what um, we could maybe expect at the uh, next COP, do you think um, what would be uh, your metrics for success in Azerbaijan? Or what? What would be an outcome of success? I should say. I think what we can expect from Azerbaijan, Azerbaijan is more of the same. You know, it's going to be in another fossil fuel producing nation, so we're going to get many of these same narratives come up again, and around you know what can we agree to around fossil fuels, fossil fuel phase outs in the the final COP text. Uh, and you know, I will 
probably be saying the same thing on on your podcast this time next year that there are all these other great events and all this other fantastic progress that was happening on the sidelines. You know, I think to me what would be a successful COP is uh, again thinking about okay, how do the conversations and the narrative that's happening at this you know bizarre global conference of the parties? How does that filter into policy and investment decisions? Well, next year is a really big year for for political elections, right? We have the US, India, uh, we have the UK, uh, Bangladesh, um, you know, a whole number of other countries that I've that I've forgotten here. South Korea is a really important one um, from a climate tech standpoint. And so the the way in which COP kind of uh, interacts with the, those domestic political conversations, I think, uh, is an interesting one to think about because ultimately, you know, those elections are going to have much more of an impact on uh, on global carbon emissions than I think the COP twenty twenty nine is. Obviously, particularly the the American. As someone who has never attended a COP um, and doesn't sound like you're going to be attending one anytime soon, perhaps. Um, if you could wave a magic, a magic wand to change COP um, from in, in any particular perspective, how would you change it? What what would you do to change it? Yeah, it's a it's a fun question to to think about. Um, so there are sort of four themes uh, that that I was thinking about and trying to answer this question. So first, I think everything a COP should be focused on. How does it affect policy? How does it uh, affect investment? And um, so, I think there there needs to be a really uh, proactive and deliberate effort on the part of COP organizers to tell that story, um, you know, and to to affect the narrative around COP and the way it's reported, the way people back home hear about what's happening uh, at COP through that lens. How is this going to affect policy or investment where I am or where, uh, you know, in places I, I care about? Uh, two, try and move away from this lowest common denominator global consensus building. You know, COP, as I say, came out of this, this period in the 90s of peak multilateralism. Let's all get together and we can, we can solve these, these challenges uh, with every country in the, in the same room. And for climate change, I just don't think that's how it's going to work. We need the the countries and the companies that are the first movers, that are the, the most ambitious, in the room, uh, in those rooms together, figuring out okay, how do we push forward on carbon capture? How do we push forward on uh, adaptation funding for for the global south? And really set the tone, set up a mechanism, uh, set up the the example for others to then follow or join in. This is the uh, the concept of climate clubs that uh, Bill Lordhouse and others have have really put together over the years. Um, third, uh, yeah, as I mentioned before, eat the elephant one one bite at a time. Climate change is you know comes down to specific technologies in specific places, and uh, you know the the agreements and coalitions uh, that that happen at COP need to be sort of designed and also um, kind of communicate it to the public in a way that's very clear that this part of the challenge we're solving in this way for these reasons and and help the public understand that climate change is is this complex interplay 
of many different sectors uh, dealing with with many different challenges. And then finally, uh, you know, I'm I'm at RMI, and, and one thing that we focus on a lot of, at RMI is what we call escrows. So that's the the process of taking a technology from an idea in someone's research lab all the way to market maturity. And you know, that's ultimately what what climate change is, uh, what solving climate change is going to come down to. Solar panels were once an idea in a defense department laboratory that slowly got taken all the way to now being a you know multi hundreds of billions dollar uh, industry, and you know that happened through really targeted government support at the early stages, um, and now it's you know uh, private investors all around the world are sort of flocking into the, the solar sector, and so I think there need to be very clearly defined, um, again, coalitions, agreements um, that are working on, you know, early stages of innovative new climate tech in hard to abate sectors, all the way up to, okay, how do we build out the global infrastructure network that we need for green hydrogen pipelines or high voltage uh, direct um, transmission, you know, between uh, countries in Europe and Africa. There are all sorts of uh, specific challenges that, that we need to break this into that I think can be thought of through that lens of, of S-curves. It seems like so much of um, what we're talking about is really focusing on, on more tangible um, outcomes and sort of, sort of moral lecturing. And one one thing that I think um, from the U.S. Study Center that I've, I've noticed is that um, the U.S. and Australia, when they get together, you know, there's a lot of discussion of AUKUS, a lot of discussion of forced posture, a lot of discussion of the strong economic relationship. But they recently announced a third pillar to the alliance, um, and and I think I've noticed that the rhetoric around this this pillar of in terms of uh, climate cooperation and um, and and areas around energy um, and critical minerals and so forth. Um, the rhetoric only seems to be increasing in terms of saying, oh, first we're going to have some MOUs, then we're going to have um, more, like uh, more partnerships, and then we're, I think there might even be a study group. I mean, I, I'm losing track of the number of entities that, that are announced about the U.S. and Australia um, working together on when it comes to climate change, um, critical minerals, energy, and so forth. Um, you, you, you recently... Uh, published a piece um, talking about the in, in the uh, lawyer interpreter talking about the the, the need for moving away from um, more lecturing. But do you see the U.S. in Australia um, moving towards these sorts of tangible outcomes and moving away from just increased rhetoric every time they get together about the need to to do these things together? Yeah. So. The way I think about climate action is that it needs to be technology and politics specific, right? And when we think about Australia and the US, the key thing to understand about those two countries from both the economic and political standpoint is that they're fossil fuel exporters. A huge number of jobs, uh, a huge amount of economic activity in both countries desperately relies on the fossil fuel economy. And so if you... Uh, think that moral lecturing uh, of Australia or, or, or the US on the issue of fossil fuels um, is going to be 
be successful, you need to think that it's not going to have this backlash among fossil fuel communities, among the, the, the sheer number of kind of economic actors who participate in that in that economy. And so moral lecturing on fossil fuels might be a very successful strategy in Holland um, or France where they don't have uh, a huge fossil fuel industry. But um, in, in Australia and the US, we face a very different political dynamic. And so it's very important to find the parts of the problem where you think you can have political success. And uh, you look at the Inflation Reduction Act in, in the US, for instance, and you know, this is arguably the most important piece of climate policy ever passed anywhere on the planet. It could be as much as $1.2 trillion worth of total climate spending. It's going to radically reshape uh, the global economy around uh, clean energy technologies, pushing the price down and ultimately accelerating decarbonization all over the world. And it did it because it was able to pass the US Congress. And it was able to pass Congress because it studiously avoided pissing off people in the fossil fuel industry. Um, and that's just that's a really, really important piece to understand in the design of that bill, that it wasn't just designed to target uh, particular sectors from a climate change standpoint, it was designed to target particular sectors from a political standpoint. And so when you think about the Australia-US climate compact, you, you kind of want to think of it through the same lens. What are the What are the issues that these two countries can uh, agree to work on from a political standpoint? Where can they go back to their constituencies and say, hey, this is helping you by us, you know, working with the Americans on issue X. Uh, you know, the um, officials at the Department of Energy can go to EV manufacturers in Michigan and say, hey, we're working with the Australians on critical minerals to be able to help supply you with the critical minerals you need to be able to meet the requirements of our tax credit. It's a very tangible thing that the government is going out and doing and finding a way to solve a specific problem in a politically pragmatic way. Now, it may be that that moral lecturing can do that in some instances, but you know, I look at the history of whether it was the Waxman-Markey bill in the US or the, the carbon tax bill in, in Australia, and by focusing on the fossil fuels, by turning it into a moral lecture on uh, the the use and consumption of fossil fuels, that set back climate policies in in those two countries by as much as as much as a decade, and it's taken us all that time to kind of reconfigure what it means to do climate policy in a politically pragmatic way. And I think the the Australia U.S. Climate Compact needs to kind of follow in those footsteps. Wow, that's a really great, great point about the, uh, the the need to really think about what actually gets runs on the board instead of um, the the more lecturing. Um, I and I highly encourage everyone to, to read your excellent piece um, on this. Um, in terms of um, smaller groupings, more broadly beyond just the US and Australia, do you do you see any smaller groupings, whether it be just the EU? or just the, the US and, and Canada, do you see that as sort of the, the next steps on, in terms of uh, making more tangible progress in on climate issues? Um, and are there, are there any uh, small groupings in particular that, that you think um, are showing sort of a, um, the, the pathway forward on this? Yeah, so I think we're seeing 
this uh, this slow but very steady march towards you know what uh, I and others have, have referred to as mini So moving away from the big global conferences on these issues, where as I say, any kind of consensus uh, sort of inevitably has to um, be a lowest common denominator consensus, and instead um, working in groups that uh, you feel like you can get things done and that share uh, similar goals. And so a great example, for instance, is the Critical Minerals Working Party. Australia is the inaugural chair um, of, of this through the International Energy Agency. So these are a bunch of countries that you know, have the relevant critical minerals, are dealing with similar problems, and by aligning uh, those positions and working together can solve very practical challenges related to um, this, this really important issue of developing out a, uh, a global uh, resilient supply chain um, on the critical minerals needed for uh, particularly uh, electric vehicle batteries, but, but wind turbines and a range of other clean energy technologies as well. Um, another example is the, uh, there's a coalition of trade ministers on climate, which is, which is a grouping um, specifically of trade ministers trying to think through uh, a lot of challenges that, that have come to the fore out of the Inflation Reduction Act around you know, this sort of resurgence of green protectionism, of you know, trying to encourage domestic manufacturing at the expense of international trade. That's a really tangible issue that only a select kind of grouping of countries are particularly interested in, and they can sit down together and work on that that particular problem. And so I think we're just seeing, you know, I, I could list uh, another half a dozen from the First Movers Coalition to Mission Innovation to the International Hydrogen Trade Forum. I mean, there is there is a um, veritable alphabet soup of these these things out there, but ultimately that's what it's what it's going to take. Um, but it, the alphabet soup speaks, I think, to why COP still uh, kind of has to retain this this position as the kind of fulcrum around which all these uh, these actions are, are coordinated. And so, you know, COP is this this centerpiece where all these different groupings can come come together and uh, and sort of announce to the world that action is happening. And you don't need to know kind of the names of all these different things to sort of see that there are all there's this huge amount of concentrated brain power in one place working on this challenge from a bunch of different perspectives. The challenge is having a central kind of conference uh, to to announce to the world that that there is hope, that there is real action happening on climate change, without it all boiling down to whether every country can agree to you know the the right placement of a comma in the fossil fuel phase out pledge of the agreement. So, uh, you know, that's that's a really difficult line to walk, but but I think there's that we need to somehow both continue this move towards uh, practical minilateralism while maintaining this kind of uh, important position in in the the global architecture that COP has found for itself as the centerpiece, as the the mouthpiece of of global climate action. Fantastic, Lachlan. Um, I wish I could speak to you for an hour on this, but um, we'll we'll have to get to the uh, end of the program where I ask you for a stats or figure um, for our by, by the numbers segment. Um, do you, by chance, have a particular stats or figure that you would like to share for us that's, uh, that's relevant to um, our discussion today? I think. Spending is an incredibly powerful indicator of 
reveal preference and uh, whether we're meeting our goals, right? You hear all these grand announcements around we're going to meet uh, this emissions target by this date, and then you find out that it's actually backed up by all sorts of strange carbon offsetting accounting and whatever, whatever. So if we if we boil it down to what it's really going to take, the IEA estimates we need something in the order of $4 trillion a year um, spent on clean, the clean energy transition in order to meet our goals. It's about 4% of uh, the globe's annual economic output. Today, we're at about $1.1 trillion a year, so we're still a long way off meeting that target. It gives you a sense of, of, of the scale. Um, and about a quarter of that, that $1.1 trillion comes from government spending. So I think the combination of those those three numbers helps us to sort of pass out what this is really going to take. We need to almost quadruple the amount we're going to spend, but most of that is going to come from the private sector. And the government's role here is to de-risk the, uh, the technologies that the private sector doesn't trust yet, to build out the infrastructure and to create the sort of supportive investment ecosystem for the private sector to pick up these technologies and run with them. Because we've seen in the extraordinary growth in, in uh, solar and wind, uh, EVs and EV batteries in, in particular, that there is appetite in the private sector to do this. Um, and we just need to, to get our act together and uh, turn that 1.1 figure into a $4 trillion figure. Excellent. And uh, I think that's a fantastic and inspiring note to, to end on. Thank you so much, Lachlan, for a uh, fantastic discussion on, on these issues. I have uh, learned quite a lot about understanding COP and uh, understanding where all these, as you said, alphabet soups are on these uh, many issues. Thanks a lot, Ben. Thanks, Chad. Really appreciate you having But as we wrap up, I'd like to point out a couple of other podcasts that may be of interest. We have the CEO, Mike Green. He's co-host of the Asia Chessboard podcast with Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair for China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'd also recommend checking out the USC Live podcast series that runs recordings from our major live events. You can find these on our brand new website, usc.edu.au, or wherever you get your podcasts.